and church history in an ancillary sort of way to support the doctrines. And I think that's appropriate for gospel doctrine. That's what we should be doing. We have an opportunity in this class to do something that is uh, a little more unique, and that is that we're studying church history, and we're going to do it very slowly uh, as it unfolds. We are doing it in the light of the Joseph Smith papers and all the things that are being revealed uh, about this almost on a monthly basis as we're looking at new narratives and understanding the prophets differently. So this is a church history class, uh, and the doctrine and covenants is going to give us directions about how things were unfolding to the brethren and sisters in, in the early church. So for those of you who don't know, I think we started in January um, and we got as far as 1832. <laughs> uh, so we got as far as section 76 and 84 and that was about as far as... So in a semester we made two years. We'll see how far we get uh, this semester. We don't have as many classes. There are generally about four less classes in the fall semester as opposed to the winter. Uh, so we're going to go as far as we can and then when we get to January we'll pick up and we'll keep on moving. Um, but, I, but I do apologize. There has been a sense in this last year of, um, well, here's some, here, let me tweak your narrative a little bit. Let me tell you what we now understand as opposed to what you grew up with. And here's another one, and here's another one. And I, I apologize that it seems like uh, we're changing all the time, but I, but I do think it's critical that we correct um, some of the, uh, sometimes the Mormon myths or the narratives that we've lived by that weren't completely accurate. And that, that's the one that trip up uh, our, especially our youth and our millennials when we tell these myths and we believe it and then they go out on the internet and they find something different. And now, do you know what the number one reason for millennials leaving the church is? The number one reason. We can't trust our leaders. That was the number one reason in the very latest survey. We can't trust our leaders. And what they're saying, and it's not about, well, we're not sure about polygamy or something like that. It's, we can't trust our leaders. Now, they have a natural skepticism of organizations anyway, and fake news, and who do you trust, and just because it's on the internet, and there's a picture doesn't mean it's true. So there's a natural skepticism that they have. But part of this is born out of the fact that we thought he used the Urim and Thummim. Now you're telling us he had his own seer stones and he used them? We thought he just sat and translated. You're telling me about a head and a hat? You know, well, that was what we were told, and it turns out. Uh, so that's part of why I'm trying to use this class a bit of as a vanguard to say we need to understand clearly uh, the expanding uh, doctrines of the church and be accurate in what we uh, say to other people. Yeah. The great CES devotional last night. Great CES devotional. And it was yeah. But but let's take that as a jumping off point because there was there was a good face to face last night. But here you have an apostle and who's sitting next to the apostle? 
two historians that have both embodied, and, and I've listened extensively to uh, podcasts from both, both of these people. They're, they're solid. They're great. But they're saying, here's the things as historians that we're making sure we check every source, dig up every article. Is this true or not? Like, for instance, here's the, here's the latest one that I heard just this last week as they're looking at. Uh, if someone is 28 and they're single and they're a guy, what is it that Brigham Young said to them? You are a menace to society. Brigham Young never said that. Good. They, can, they don't know who started it, but in all of the research they've found in trying to track out Brigham Young and his statements, we can do digital searches of all of his talks. We have no record of Brigham Young saying that they would be a menace to society. But how many times have we repeated that myth? That, that's what I'm talking about. That We're trying to clear up a lot of those things. We are in this air, area of transition where the church is transitioning from we're telling our history to, uh, to move the missionary work forward and so like marketing we're going to kind of emphasize our best parts. Which means there's some things we're not we're not we're not going to bring up the topic of polygamy in the missionary discussions before we baptize them. Then they're going to find out about polygamy later and think that they've been uh, maybe you didn't tell me the whole truth. Okay, we're moving from that period of time where our history is being told by careful historians who are being able to say, here's the accuracy, and let's be very transparent about everything that's in our church that, that people may have to adapt to as they join. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's, that's where we are. So let me give you kind of an example now of that. Um, all right, Elder Ballard, and this really kind of goes hand in hand with the uh, face-to-face last night. Uh, here's here's uh, what Elder Ballard said this last uh, winter at BYU. I sometimes worry that members expect too much from church leaders and teachers, expecting them to be experts in subjects well beyond their duties and responsibilities. The Lord called apostles and prophets to invite others to come unto Christ, not to obtain advanced degrees in ancient history, biblical studies, and other fields that may be useful in answering the questions we have about the scriptures, history, and the church. Our primary duty as apostles is to build up the church, teach the doctrine of Christ, and help those in need of help. If you have a question that requires an expert, please take the time to find a thoughtful and qualified expert to help you. There are many on this campus, he was speaking at BYU, and elsewhere who have degrees and expertise to respond and give some insight to most of these types of questions. Now listen carefully to what he's saying, because this is miles removed from, it's not important to your testimony, don't worry about it. What he's saying is, ask questions and go to experts to get the answers. And as apostles, we may not be the experts. We're experts on teaching the gospel and doctrine. We're not necessarily experts on uh, polygamy or on uh, priesthoods and the blacks and all those kind of things, okay? When would Elder Ballard have made this statement? This this last winter. This last last year. Yeah, this was this was from a uh, BYU devotional that he just made. Just did. Okay. Yeah. I remember some years ago, and I can't remember the president of the church, but they bought uh, a manuscript from 
a guy and it turned out to be a fraud. You're right. And right. I heard a lot of people ask me, because I was in the Utah Times, how come the president it was President Hinckley, uh, who was one in the in the right. Yes, good. You know what? Great question. Great question. He's bringing up the instance in the '80s where uh, uh, master forger Mark Hoffman uh, was busy forging documents of Abraham Lincoln, but also of Joseph Smith, and he was coming up with all this kind of stuff, and he was selling them to the church. And we have pictures in the church news of President Hinckley in the in the first presidency receiving these things from Mark Hoffman. Uh, there's all of these kind of things. And then it turns out that Hoffman is forging these things. Um, by the way, do you know what Hoffman was working on when he, when he blew himself up in the bomb in the car and he killed two other people? He was working on forging the lost 116 pages. That's what he was working That was his project at the time, by the way. Um, but yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't a prophet know? And, and what Elder Ballard is saying, no, we have a specific focus that we're trying to do, and we're, we don't have advanced uh, scriptural knowledge about all of these kind of things. Uh, one of my... Um, one of the classes that I went to before the before I before I taught in uh, Provo uh, a few weeks ago was was by the guy that is uh, writing BYU's new commentary on the Book of John. I've been reading through the Book of Luke that is just that just came out really well done. But I'm now but but the this guy is doing the new commentary on the Book of John, and it will be fabulous. And it is scholarly at a very high level, and it would match any books of John that have been done in any other setting, by any other church. That's what we're trying to do, trying to be accurate. Yeah. I'm trying to find the answer to his question in what you said. Oh, okay. <laughs> About what, how come the prophet shouldn't have known? Right. Well, what would you say to somebody who was really asking that question? President Hinckley was fooled. And wouldn't they be, then respond? They they may have that they may have had some misgivings and feeling something about this and Hoffman's character, but remember uh, Joseph Smith had an adulterer in his first presidency, John C. Bennett, who did a lot of things for them, but they didn't realize that he'd had another family. So some part of our new paradigm of prophets is no, they don't know everything that's going on, and sometimes they get fooled. And, and then when they recognize it, then they can be open about the fact that I, we thought it was this, and it turns out that it was this. That's a different way of looking at prophets than we have in the past. I can imagine that the Holy Father had a very specific purpose for the, the fooling. Yeah. Look at all what we do know now in the example of that. Sure, that, and that, that the example of that uh, was Brigham Young wrong on the ban on blacks in the priesthood? Probably, yes. But we, we, we have this, the moment when it happened, and shouldn't have happened. Did, but that, that's what happened. Yeah? Hey, the question is, so we see that prophets and apostles are fallible. They are. They can get fooled. The question is, how do you know... When ah, see there, there, that's right. There's the question, right? 
There's the question. In other words, just the fact that Brigham Young was wrong on the ban of blacks and the priesthood, did that stop him from being a prophet or any other inspired work that he did going forward? No, he was a prophet of God and I love him and I revere his words and his, and his example. And same thing with President Hinckley. But we just have these moments when sometimes they get fooled and I think, I think what we have... So the question is our own individual testimony of a prophet that we have to be able to listen to and listen to our own heart that gives us that gives us that guidance. But sometimes we're not going to know for a while that they got full. We don't have the knowledge they have. Okay, and it may take a little while before it's revealed. Okay, yeah. Which I think is really interesting with Brigham. If it was a mistake. Yeah. That, that's an if. If yeah. it was a Right, mistake, yeah, right. Look at what the Lord did to sustain his promise. And there, there to me is the biggest piece of all to this is that uh, look at what the Lord did to sustain his prophet in other words he didn't like send an angel in to stop him or anything like that that the Lord will give them uh, what uh, one scholar called the keys of Pharaoh and you're going to be able to move the church forward and sometimes there were mistakes made but he's also going to sustain you and, and we sustain them until that change uh, is, is rectified yeah and, and another thing is that all the prophets after him until Spencer W. Kimball prayed about the sure. question, they as they did not receive that answer to uh, to allow it until that's right. So it, you know maybe it was uh, a, a wrong call, but it has a purpose. Why it from that time till I know. Absolutely. And, but I think it also, again, goes to the heart of understanding prophets. Now, this becomes really important when we start talking about the prophet Joseph Smith and some of the decisions that he made. Because some of the, he made, he made mistakes on a number of occasions. Yeah. I remember reading the book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. Oh, yeah. And, um, yes. And it talked about a situation where they... The, his fam, Kimball's family came across some extra money and she wanted to buy things for the house and he wanted to take the family on a trip. So he took the family on a trip without his wife. And it made me realize that there is some human in them and that I'm not perfect and they're probably not quite President perfect. Kimball was my prophet and I love him and I revere him and I sat for hours and was blessed by his service to the church. I believe that if President Kimball had wrote the miracle of forgiveness today as opposed to when he did, it would be a completely different book. But that's one of the reasons it went out of print. <laughs> why, why they're saying there are things now in there that, that we have greater knowledge about things like homosexuality and things that they had then and that they were just and he was simply wrong on a couple of things in there. Yeah. So I just want to clarify what you're saying Brigham Young he banned blacks from receiving the priesthood yeah. before that it was Yes. Right. We'll have a discussion on that. I don't want to go too far down that road, but it comes at a time when they're deciding are they going to have slaves in the territory of Utah. And it comes at a specific time in the State House. But we'll have another discussion on that another time. Yeah.
you go. And be able to read and understand truth. So, so with that, thank you. With that as a jumping off point, when we talk about, uh, let's step forward here. Um, when we talk about Joseph Smith and the translation process, and I want to liken this, not just him, but to us. Okay? Here, here's how this worked. Joseph Smith had, had text that he was, he saw himself almost primarily as a seer for about half the time he was prophet. Other people, Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, would, would give the best talks, would lead things administratively. He saw himself as the translator and the seer. So he was working with ancient texts. And administratively, not so much until he gets to Nauvoo. Then he, after Liberty Jail and Nauvoo, he really steps up, Joseph the administrator, and he becomes mayor and he's doing all these kinds of things. Before then, the other brethren were doing a lot of things. He's studying with Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery and, and Frederick G. Williams and studying ancient texts, trying to bring these things forward. Um, so he started off with the gold plates, uh, the, the introduction of the papyri, the, uh, the uh, Egyptian papyri in like 1833 uh, gets him going. Uh, no, 1835. 1835. So he's looking at that, but he's also uh, it's taking him three years to, to work through the translation of the Bible. And he's very carefully going through the translation of the Bible at the Lord's direction. We need a new translation of the Bible. Bring it, make sure it's translated correctly. And so most of his time is sitting, working, and, and interacting with it. And how did he do that? Well, First of all, he brings to bear any academics and learning that he can find. Um, so, for instance, we know that um, late 1835, 1836, uh, he brings in Joshua Satius, uh, a Hebrew teacher, to teach them Hebrew. Okay, now let me, add, let me stop for a sec. And it kind of goes back to shouldn't President Kimball have known about the, the uh, forgeries? As a prophet, why would he need to learn Hebrew? This is a man that, can, that has stood in the presence of the Father and the Son, in the presence of angels, and received revelation. Why in the world would he have to spend time to learn uh, Hebrew to the point that one of the brethren in the Hebrew class said that Joseph Smith was like a, uh, a uh, calf with what, three, how did he put it, a calf with three udders? <laughs> Going crazy. He, yeah, and he, uh, yes, uh, he was just nuts on trying to learn, and Orson Pratt was a little better, Joseph Smith was far more passionate about learning Hebrew, and he would wake up uh, Joshua Satius in the middle of the night to ask him about conjugating a certain verb. Why would a prophet of God need to learn Hebrew when he just had revelation that could teach him that stuff? I don't know much about Hebrew, but I learned this this summer that just by changing one or two letters Absolutely. changes right. the whole meaning of... I know. The vowels float around the top, the consonants are in the middle, and you change the wrong vowel up here, and suddenly it moves it to a whole different thing and a whole different meaning. And if it was changed by the scholars way back when... Yeah, when there were no vowels on there, so now you're having to guess by context. Okay? I would agree with that. Um, but also, it's learning something new. I mean, we're inspired all the time to learn new things in our lives to keep our minds, you know, growing and... Okay, so, so we're supposed to be learning. We're going to talk about that in Section 88. We'll see if we get there today. 
But why? Yeah. Well, every language has a sphere. And as you become familiar with the language and you, you uh, how do you want to say it? You become familiar with the spirit. You begin to have a sense of the way uh, sentences are structured. Sure. Uh, when we read the Bible, there are countless places where you can change your perspective on the verse and it will have a totally different... Sure. But, but but shouldn't revelation clear those up? In other words, if he's in, if he's listening to the Spirit in revelation, shouldn't the Spirit give him the right interpretation of that scripture? That's that's my point. Yeah. Well, I think you know when Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, that needed to be done at a certain time in a certain way. Right. And With the language he couldn't even read. And the Lord had prepared the way for him to do that when he was going back through the Bible. Joseph Smith had to learn certain things. He had to have certain clothes. And the Lord wasn't as big as that. Okay. So, so, so let me suggest something to you based on, on that. One of the things that my belief is that if you look at the pattern here, because the pattern then completes itself uh, by then saying divine inspiration and revelation then come in. Okay? And I think that's the pattern for Joseph. I think it's the pattern for us. My belief is, is that Joseph learned in Hebrew. He learned some German. Uh, he was constantly studying. We'll find out he was using some other commentaries in, in, in translating the New Testament part of the Book of Mormon. Uh, he incorporated some, uh, some masonry into the temple ceremony. Joseph saw himself not so much as creating stuff out of whole cloth, but as an accumulator of knowledge and truth. So he was looking and he was always gathering truth truth from wherever he could find it and it was his job to synthesize it and bring it together. So when he's reading Hebrew for instance he's creating pockets and places in his heart and in his mind that the revelation can pour additional knowledge into. And, and in our own study, our ability to study the best commentaries and scholarly research we can find on scriptures creates a place for the spirit to fill. Does that make sense? It creates a bucket that might not be there otherwise, but we're opening up the possibility of saying, okay, now the Spirit says, I can because you study this, I can enlighten you on this topic far more than you would have had because you created the bucket. You created the space for me to put the knowledge into. And Joseph did that over and over and over. He studied enough Hebrew, we understood it, but by the time we get to 1844 and the King Follett Discourse, the Spirit is pouring stuff into these big buckets that Joseph created, and now he's given us a much broader view of the eternities and of the cosmos. Okay? So, yeah? Well, President Russell and Nelson said, good revelation is based on good information. So, yes. Right. So that, that's part of why it is that I believe that in our gospel scholarship, um, I think there is a place for saying, I read the Book of Mormon uh, 15 minutes a day, and that may mean that I'm trying to get the Book of Mor through the Book of Mormon by the end of the year, which means I'm reading a chapter a day. And, and I think there's a place for that in our daily lift to feel of the Spirit, and I think we're in a better spiritual plane when we, when we do that. Uh, I would suggest to you, though, that if that is the only way that you study the Scriptures, that's going to be woefully inadequate. 
because the, beyond that is to then, uh, if you're taking the same 15 minutes and you read a verse in, in Mosiah, but it's the same thing that you found in Paul, or it's the same thing that's in Moroni, or something, and you start tying those together, that there are going to be times that I think your best time is served by connecting and studying and researching and putting together things as opposed to just always just a linear read through um, and you're missing it. Okay? Yeah? This this is not without uh, scriptural... uh, Yeah, you're about to see some. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, Brother Jared. Oh, yeah. He went up to the mountain. Sure. And he said, well, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, and we have this problem and this problem and this problem, and the Lord gave you the answer right. to part of it. Right. Then he says, well, what do you want me to do? You know, go come up with yeah, Go figure it out. Bring it back. Right. And right. we'll see how it goes from there. Sure. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, and it actually is a come. So we have, and again, we'll see how far we get between probably uh, today and, and uh, next week. Um, I want you to see a pattern. We're going to actually be looking at uh, two, uh, three sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. But in two of them, the Lord is going to give uh, parables. He's going to rewrite parables of the Savior, and re- rewrite his own parables, and give us a much greater commentary, turn both of them on their head, and give us a much greater knowledge and understanding of our duty today, but also the parable as it was originally given. And it comes because Joseph was studying and prepared. Okay? So, um, we get to December of 1832. Um, it's winter, not a whole lot going on. He's camped out in the upper room of the uh, Whitney store, translating. Now, in the spring of 1832, he had been working his way through the, the translation, the new translation of the, the uh, Bible. Now, we know from the Old Testament that when he does the the Old Testament, Joseph is having these great and grand revelatory experiences. Out of the Old Testament comes the pearl of great price. You know, the book of Mosiah, which was far bigger than what we have now. We lost most of it. Uh, Same with the book of Abraham. It's all coming out of his rewrites of of the Old Testament. Moses. Moses. Yeah, did I say what I say? It would be Moses. Got it. Thank you. That's what we thought. Okay. You knew what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) When he gets to the New Testament, he starts making minor changes. Sometimes little italicized words that you see in the King James Version. He's changing those. He's changing texts. You know, just one word at a time. We now know that he was using, most likely, there was a prominent commentary by uh, Adam Clark. It's still a well-respected Bible commentary. We, he was using that, most likely. His changes to the, the New Testament in March of 1832, 90% of those are the same ones that Adam Clark made. He's using that commentary. Okay? And learning and understanding and getting in that pattern. Now, here's what happens, though. So he's He's interacting with the text. He finds the best book available. It's Adam Clark's commentary. He does that. 
Now we get into the winter and he starts going back over his translations and the Lord goes, now you created the space, let me fill the bucket. And here it comes. And, and so the, the first one we're going to get is on um, Matthew 13. And it results in section 86 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let me, let me uh, backpedal here a little bit. Let's go to... Um, Let's go to Matthew 13, just to familiarize ourselves. In fact, let's, I'm going to do it this way. Let me go to 86. Uh, okay, here's Matthew 13. The Savior gives about three parables, and one of them is the parable we know as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field while men slept. His enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But the blade was sprung up, brought forth fruit. Then also appeared the tares also. So the servants of the household came and said, Sir, did you sow good field in thy field? Where where'd the tares come from? He says, an enemy had done this. They said, well, should we go gather them up? He says, no, wait, because uh, you'll pull up the wheat. Okay, yeah, let them grow until the harvest. Um, and then I'll say to the reapers, uh, gather the, the first the tares, bind, burn them, and then gather the wheat to my barn. Okay, we know that. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. He gives about three parables. He gets done. The disciples, it says, so he gives another one, the grain of the mustard seed, and all that. Um, and then there's the, the women. Um, verse 36. So after they get done doing all this, now they're now they're the disciples had the Savior to themselves, and they go, um, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Of all the ones that there he just said, there's like, uh, can you give us more info on the wheat and the tares one? That's kind of okay. Why do you think they would be interested in that? Us wheat are walking around, and what are we worried about? Tares. Who's the tares? Out there, art thou a tear? Who's the tares? I'm not a tear. I'm not. Are you wheat? I think. How do we know? Which ones are the wheats? Which ones are the tares? I don't know. He said he planted them. Wow. And it was the it was the enemy that done. Wow. Okay. So so they pulled the sword aside. Um, can you give us more information on the wheat and the tares, please? That would be helpful. Okay, so the Savior gives a commentary on the wheat and the tares. Okay, well, 37, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Ah, oh, well, that makes sense to us. Okay, the field is the world. Ah, oh, got it. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. Oh, that would be us. Okay, <laughs> but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Okay, which ones would they be? If you were talking to the Apostle John, he would say, it was that Judas Iscariot. <laughs> he was the terror. You know, all the way through the book of John, he's like, he was so bad, that guy. He's the terror. Okay. 39, the enemy that sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, the tares are gathered and burned. Uh, 41, then the Son of Man sent forth his angels. Um, 
and he's going to gather them all, all those things that offend, and then he's going to cast them. Let me look at look at the commentary the Lord is providing, verse after verse after verse. Uh, then the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. Do you get that now? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, if, if there's a, if the Savior's telling a parable, wouldn't you kind of like the Savior to provide the commentary for the parable? Okay. That would be helpful. Guess what? He did it again. And he did, and he does it in section 86. We get a second commentary on the wheat and the tares, um, but only because Joseph took the time to try and go through and try and understand. Now he's created, they created the bucket. Now the Lord says, now let me update that thing and give you far greater knowledge about the wheat and the tares. Okay, now, what's fascinating about this, and I want you to put it in the back of your head. In the Revelation book, on the, um, in the Joseph Smith papers, you can read, if, when you look at the original document for section 86, right across the top of there, uh, Frederick G. Williams wrote on priesthood. So he actually sees section 86 and the wheat and the tares as a discussion about priesthood, which I think is fascinating. And, and, and why, that, why that's true, I'll, I'll show you in a second. Okay? But, okay. Verily thus saith the Lord... Un so here's... Here in section 86, here comes the revelation. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, concerning the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to give you an, the updated commentary based on you guys. Okay? Verily I say unto you, the field was the world. Now, now it's being, he's updating it. The field was the world. And the apostles were the sowers of the seed. Now he's putting it in a specific time. What period of time did he just put the wheat and the tares? In that the first, between the death of the Savior and the death of the apostles. So now we're now we're talking about the latter part of of that uh, up until about 100 A.D. Probably more like about 70 or 80. Okay. So he's he's now giving you some historical context on this. Okay. The field was the world. The apostles were the sowers. Now, and after they, the apostles have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, which maketh all nations to drink at her cup, whose heart, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan. So, by the way, where does, where does he sow the, the tares? In the hearts. Uh, soweth the tares, wherefore the tares choke the wheat and drive the church into the wilderness. That's not Matthew 13. Now, where do we find the, wheat, the, 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 the church being driven into the wilderness? Anybody know? I don't want to hit you too much here, but uh, it's in... Uh, I'll show you real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop over here. I've got, I put above verse 3, uh, Revelations 12. Here's Revelations 12. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had the 
place prepared for her of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. There's going to be a point when the church, the, the church is the woman and she's going to be driven into the wilderness and the Savior is saying to these brethren, okay, back to 86, that at some point these tares drive the church, they choke, the word is choke, they choke the wheat and send it off into the wilderness. The church will be lost. Okay? Now, do we have an idea? And then the next verse, verse 4, says, Behold, in the last days. So now he's going to rewrite the, the uh, wheat and the tares and put it in a modern context. Okay? But before we get there, I want to... I when exactly did the church get driven into the wilderness? Okay, let me show you when in the apostasy I think it occurred. This is just Hinckley Doctrine. Um, by way of uh, my, my, my good buddy Daniel Peterson. Um, where are you going? Come on. I don't know why we're going backwards here. Um, let, let me put this in, in uh, historical context. This is going to come up here. Set here. As, as the church, as the apostles died out, uh, the church was now compliments of the, the, the apostles, especially Paul and Peter, had branches all over the Mediterranean. Okay? All over the place. Uh, we, have, we think about 1,800 branches of the church. And, and uh, when it gets to be about... Um, and so no, no one bishop is in charge. They're all kind of equal. Now, about the time that Constantine comes to the throne and he, and he uh, um, wants to make Christianity the, uh, the, the religion of the realm, the problem is we have 1,800 branches of the church spread out all over the place and everybody's teaching a little bit something different. How do we make sure we kind of get all on the same page? You know, we're, we're Roman, dang it. This is the Roman Empire. We do things and we standardize things so how do we how do we standardize this thing well we're going to hold a council let's bring everybody together and we're going to hold a council at the city of Nicaea the of which uh, the modern city is Itzik in uh, Turkey Okay, it's not far from Ephesus. It's a little bit inland from Ephesus. Um, so we're going to bring everybody together because we want to understand what we believe because there are some big bumps going on here and that is particularly around the divinity of Christ and his nature. There's a lot of arguments going on about that. So let's bring everybody together. We're going to bring them all to, to uh, Nicaea. And we're going to have a council. And we're going to decide as a council what the belief of the church should be. Easy done, right? No. Part of the problem is twofold. One, uh, at this moment, the majority of the church sits mainly in Greece. It is a, it is a Greek church. It is, it is full of um, 
of uh, Greek thought, Greek mythology, uh, and, and one of the things that uh, some of the Christian fathers believed that those were the tares. It was the Greek thought and mythology that was creeping its way into the church. Okay, You've got 1,800 people though. So they're all going to gather. Of the 1,800, and by the way, the Latin contingent from Rome, they're like two or three people. The Rome bishop doesn't have a whole lot of power at this first synod. He just doesn't. He's not there much. Okay? So it's Greek-dominated. Okay? So they come all together. Of 1,800, 318 show up. Um, and so, for one thing, you don't have a representative sample of 1,800 churches. Did our air conditioner go off? Vicki, you want to hit that again? Bottom, bottom one. There we go. And turn down. Thank you. Okay? So that's the first problem. Number two, there has developed this massive schism in the belief system of this church in, in uh, the late 200s, early 300s. And, that, and you have two champions. One is a, is a man by the name of Arius. Arius believes that as he reads the scriptures it says that Christ was the only begotten of the Father. Therefore the Father had to begat the Son. At some point Jesus was born. In the eternities he was born. So he's not quite sure what that means for his divinity but he thinks maybe, yeah, but at the very least there is a moment in time in the eternities when Jesus didn't exist because he is the begotten of the Father. That's Arius' belief from Alexandria. Okay? The counter to that is Aramaeus. Uh, Aramaeus is one of the more prominent bishops, and he says, that is heresy. You just took away Jesus' divinity. Uh, he has been a god from eternity to eternity. He always has been. Uh, yes, when he came down, there was he, he took on a sonship, but... But uh, Jesus the Father and Jesus the Son are the same person of substance in the same, uh, like Zeus. Zeus is like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So we can combine multiple people into a body of substance at the same time. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's like that. Our Greek training prepares us for multiple gods in the same body. So Aramaeus goes, yes, this is, this is not only are we right, but... But Arius is a traitor and a heretic, and he must be stopped at all cost. Okay, so that's the backdrop for getting together to the, we all show up at Nicaea, 318 out of 1800. Okay, now they get there, and, and sometimes uh, church historians looking at this have thought, there was this wonderful little spiritual gathering of 318 bishops that peacefully decided the spirit descended like Pentecost. And they were able to come up with a creed that encapsulated how this worked. Any of you who are older, do you remember the Democratic National Convention of 1968? <laughs> what was going on in 68? Anti-war, Vietnam, Riots, police, tear gas, screaming, yelling, chaos, Chicago's on fire. Okay, that was Nicaea. <laughs> 
You need to understand that the Council of Nicaea was more like a political rally than it was a nice spiritual little meeting of uh, the... So, so what you get here, okay, and the battle was over uh, one substance. Is Jesus and the Father of the same substance? Even though there's a manifestation of his humanity here and his godhood here. Put it together. Okay. So on one side, those of Aramaeus are saying, we must defend Jesus' divinity. And the ones of Aramaeus are going, that's crazy because we need to see his humanity and the way that he loved people because he is humanness. And so they're coming from these, from these places of trying to defend. And so what you get here, um, and I know this is... A little bit tougher to see. Yeah, flip the light. Okay. One of the icons of the church. Uh, in the background, even though this isn't built for another uh, 100 years or so, this is the Hagia Sophia. It's the church uh, that, that actually, uh, there's a, the Hagia Sophia still stands in uh, Istanbul. Uh, incredible place. Uh, and But it, at that point, that was a smaller version of it. Anyway, here's Constantine in the middle. Here's the people discussing. And look at this guy down here. That's Arius, the heretic. <laughs> That's Arius, the heretic. And if you could read the Greek here, and I've heard Daniel Peterson read this, and it talks about Arius, the heretic, okay, who's talking about the humanity of Jesus and, all, and, and the Arians that would, uh, that would say that. By the way, I, I, I recently, just in the last couple of days, I read a, from a Catholic... Um, encyclopedia where they're talking about Arianism. And he says, it still exists in some quarters today, especially among the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. <laughs> well, that was kind of cool. Okay. All right. Uh, so this is, this is Arius here, and he's being slapped by Santa Claus. <laughs> that is St. That is Nick. <laughs> That is St. Nicholas. And there's an infamous moment where in, in the Council of Nicaea, the St. Nicholas just slaps the crud out of Arius. <laughs> okay. And so in paintings it is celebrated. Okay. So here is the moment here. And you just got... And so they were, there were thugs beating up each other in back alleys and trying to prevent bishops from getting there. and Because they're each are espousing their own thing. It's just mass chaos in Nicaea. Okay, and finally out of that, Aramis, Aramis wins, and they're able to then encapsulate an idea, and that will have to be reiterated in the about 40 years later in another council of Constantinople, and and over and over and over. But but in so many ways, um, I believe that this is one of the one of the major moments. Okay, you can turn the lights back on. That the, the tares choked the wheat and drove the church into the wilderness. Yeah. Did anybody notice the irony of this, this group coming together to discuss Christian principles? <laughs> and then they're fighting about it? Right. That's never stopped them before. There's not much nice. I mean, the, the, no. I mean, did everybody notice the, the irony of the Crusades with the cross while we go kill, uh, you know, Muslims? Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's all... Religion and I uh, is full of ironies. Yeah. Not to bring up a bad topic, but... Is there any relation between 
Aryans and Aries? No. No, that's uh, Aryans, that's a, that's a German thing, different deal. These are the people of R.E.S. Okay? Say, I think that's the moment because it says some of the critical doctrines of the church are now driven into the wilderness literally, literally by choking, by, by attacking, by mobbings. Uh, they, would, they, would blockade, they would blockade the ports if they knew that these people, that uh, the people of Arius were showing up to vote. You know, it was a very violent kind of thing. And, and that, that is the moment, and the Savior's talking about that. Okay? Uh, but, behold, in the last day. So now, so now the Lord's going to say, okay, here is the wheat and the tares that I gave to my apostles. But now let me update it. So I'm going to actually give you a new wheat and tares uh, applicable to now. In the last days, even now, while the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word, the blade is springing up and is tender. Who's the blade? Yeah, the church made up of jo Joseph and, you know, and, and all these people that are just, you're kind of new. This is, a, this is a new thing. And you're just springing up out of the earth. Okay? Uh, behold I say unto you the angels at the moment are crying unto the Lord day and night who are ready to wait waiting to, to sit down and reap the fields I, I was reading a, a, a blog from this millennial guy and the name of his blog is don't reap me bro <laughs> don't reap me please okay um the angels are crying unto the Lord day and night and are ready to, to because of the wickedness that they see, and reap the fields. Okay? But the Lord saith unto them, Pluck up not the tares while the blade is tender. And then he, he's going to give us a description. Uh, verse 6 For verily your faith is weak, lest you destroy the wheat also. So we're getting this sense of saying, and I, and I kind of love this. I love, because aren't there times when, uh, you know, sometimes in the, um, the, the horror stories that sometimes those in the gay community that are members of the church that are trying to figure out how they're going to handle this, the older stories of, of uh, families who would say to somebody, you're gay, get out. You know, you're gay, I'm disowning you, I'm kicking you out. You know, until you can stop the perversions, you know, get out of here. And, and or someone is sinful and we just say, well, therefore I, I rip my cloak of thee and I'm going to send you out. And you get this sense of the Lord going, give it time. Because at this stage of the game, you don't know who the wheat is and you don't know who the tares are. Or... Because the blade is green and, and just barely coming up, if you if you pull up the tears, you your chances of pulling up the good. The the roots of the wheat is still so near the surface and it's not very deep. If we start pulling up tears, we'll pull up the the yeah, we will. And I and I think that can happen quite a bit. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, the church in Italy. Um, you, you know, you've got so many members that are that are newer, a lot of them in Italy, in uh, Europe in general, are, they're, not from, they're not from there. 
They're, they're from Africa. They're from all over the place. And their, their knowledge of the church... By the way, the, the longest at this moment... This is 1832. What is the longest period of time that somebody at this moment could have been a member of the church in Kirtland? Two years. <laughs> and because it's in Kirtland, and they didn't get to Kirtland for another year after, how long have most of these members been members? Because we actually sent the New York people onto Missouri. In, in Kirtland, what's the longest most people have been members? About a year. Okay? And these are going to be your leaders, and these are going to be the, you know, so they're pretty tender. Think about how the knowledge of people after about a year. Um, I, have a, I have a wonderful sweet sister from another country as a, as a client of mine, and she's pretty clear about saying, uh, I says, well, have you studied the Bible? She says, President Nelson says I should read my Bible. I have my, I have my President Nelson. I have my Book of Mormon. And she says, so I don't need the Bible. I have my Book of Mormon. I read the Book of Mormon every day, and I listen to President Nelson and read the Book of Mormon. I really kind of don't need the Bible. Okay. <laughs> it's baby steps. You know? Uh, we're going to move, we move this ball. So, so what, what he's saying here is, uh, take your time. Verse 7, Therefore let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. Then you shall gather the wheat among the tares. How will you know why harvest time? Why harvest time? Um, you know, I had a, a thought before that. Yeah. There was a lot of persecution in church during the first mm -hmm. little bit of it. The tears begin to show themselves. And, and, how do, and how does a tear show itself different from the wheat? By its fruit. By its fruit. If you're sitting there after this period of time, they find mature plants. How are you going to know the wheat and the tares? The wheat have fruit. You know, it's easy, it's easy to see. It becomes obvious at that point. By their fruit, you shall know them. Okay? And that's how you know. And, but for a long period of time, you're not going to know. And, and then you're looking for those, for those fruits. Okay? After the gathering of the wheat, uh, and by the way, uh, this is now, he actually changes this from Matthew 13. In, in Matthew 13, you gather the tares first. He, uh, he alters this, and Joseph originally had left it that the same. He changes this around. He's going to gather the wheat first. You gather out the wheat from the tares. It makes more sense. After the gathering of the wheat, and lo, the tares are bound in bundles, and the field remains to be burned. Okay? So there you have it. Okay? There is the updated version of the wheat and the tares. Now, but now notice, because the Lord always adds then one more thing. What was, the, what was the name of this? What was the title across section 86? Adam Priesthood. We thought it would be about gathering. <laughs> sort of is. Verse 8. Therefore, thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers. I've only been a member of the church for like a year, and I just got the. This is December, and I just got the priesthood back in Orange in June. I've only had the priesthood for six months. How can they have? How can this be the lineage of their fathers? 
It's, it's because of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It, they are receiving. He just connected this, and th to this moment, they hadn't necessarily seen this connection. That this priesthood is actually coming from where? The fathers, meaning the, the, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going, this is a priesthood that goes way back. I'm connecting you here. You're, yes, you're a tender blade. You are. You don't know very much. But you need to know that the priesthood that is blessing men and women in this generation comes from... It's ancient. And it comes from the lineage of your fathers. Uh, for ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, have been hid from the world with Christ. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. Restoration of what things? In 1832, they ain't got a clue. <laughs> we are about six months away when we get to June, when we get to May of 1833, and we're not going to get to it much today. We may crack it a little bit, but we're going to really jump into section 88. What, what, what's he going to tell them in just a few months? The restoration of what things? The priesthood through where? the temple the temple is about to be in, in section 88 they're going to be told you need a school of the prophets and you need to build a house and they've been waiting on the guys in Missouri to build the house and, and they're just hanging on by their toenails and by the way the guys in Jackson County in 1832 are about six months away from being driven out of Jackson County in the middle of the night they're not going to be able to build the temple and the Lord knows that and he's about to say five months later to the people of Kirtland I need a school of the prophets and I need a temple and they're going to go Okay, we're not quite sure for what, but he, he's right now he's lying the, laying the foundation and he's about to say, uh, and he's going to say to them uh, that by doing this, uh, I take it back, he's going to tell them in three days. It's not May. Section 88 is coming in, in uh, a week. It'll be a, December 27th and 28th is Section 88. So, at this moment in time, just a couple weeks away, they are not yet cognizant of what all this means. Okay? Yes. Yeah? Didn't they, didn't they even think it was a temple? Well, the, the original idea, remember, when, when they're first thinking about temple, what are they thinking? Where's the temple going to be built? In Jackson County, in Independence. What will that temple look like? That's the temple that the Savior is going to come to because the second coming is like next year, right? So we're going to hurry. Now, you're right. So when they think about building a temple, though, in Kirtland, they go, well, wouldn't a log cabin do? That's why he's going to have to give them in section 90. He's going to go, no, let me give you the dimensions of this thing, and it's going to have to be specific. But at this moment, they don't yet know. And they're thinking that the temple's going to be an independence. And this is the one the Savior's going to come. They hadn't thought about doing it in Kirtland. The Lord's going to say, no, do it in Kirtland. Because I have uh, 
I have after restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of the holy prophet since the world began. I have things to give you. And it's going to come through the priesthood. Uh, and your job is to go out and, and plant in the fields. What are we going to be teaching? Well, that's coming in section 88. I, I'm going to give you more direction about how to do this. So, uh, Alright, comments on that. That's didn't realize it would take us. Yeah. How many of? Uh, I'm sorry. I need to go back and see who who was there when this. For, for section 86, right. he and Sydney. Just the two. Of Just the two of them. Did have the Aaronic priesthood. Mm-hmm. So. Well, he now, then now had the Melchizedek priesthood as of <laughs> as of last June. Okay. So yeah, they've got the they, they've got the Melchizedek priesthood, but they but again. They're not quite sure exactly what are we doing with this and exactly what all power does it have. And, and, but they, but there's, there's an awful lot of keys they don't yet have. And how many people in, in uh, Kirtland at that time, how many men had, had the priesthood? To the priesthood at all. She went, um, the, in, in, in three weeks at the conference of uh, 20, uh, 27, 28, uh, there are going to be about nine brethren there. An awful lot, so they're, about, so they're a handful in Kirtland, and then you take the ones in Missouri. They've, they've been able to, to give them the priesthood, but there's not, not very many. I'll bet, I'll bet between Missouri and Kirtland, I'll bet there's, there may be less than 50. Wow. It, it, may be a small, it may be a small group. Yeah. So when was the priesthood taken in the during the ancient church? Was that during the Council of Nicaea before? She wanted to know when the priesthood was taken. It just kind of petered out, <laughs> literally. literally. Uh, yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah. It, it came as they died. Uh, see, we don't know about like Clement. Clement. Clement was baptized by uh, Peter. But we don't know what kind of priesthood he held. But certainly by the time we're rolling into the mid, uh, they're just dying out faster. Uh, then they can really kind of be replaced after, especially after Peter and Paul go to Rome and then they're killed there. So yeah, it just kind of wandered out. Yeah. Other than John who was still on the earth and he held John over here and then the, the ne Nephite prophets on the other continent. I'm a little confused as to your timeline. Yeah. You said they were six months away from being driven out of Jackson. Yeah. Six years? <laughs> No, no. This is 1832. The, the 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 saints will be driven out of Jackson County in July of 1833. They're six months away. They will then go from there, and then they will. And that's when they will cross over the 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 river, and they're going to go up into Caldwell County, and that's when they start building far west. Oh. And everything up there. So they're not driven out of Missouri. The, the driven out of Missouri is 1837-1838. But the, the initial drive out of their initial places in Independence is only six months away. They're just hanging on by their bootstraps down there. And it doesn't take a whole lot. Um, because for one thing, it's a it's a slave state, and these guys are courting the Indians, and they might bring slaves in next. So they're, we got to get them out of there. That's that's coming. So, all right. Other question. Good stuff. Okay. Oh man. Oh 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 oh. Oh shoot. Okay. That even my parables for next week. Um, all right. 
Uh, tell you what, we got a couple of minutes. Let me just let me just get the start for us. Um, oh, why is it doing that? Uh, let's see. Well, while this is while this is happening, um, let, let me tell you the ch the the section I am going to hop over. Uh, just because I thought these were more kind of doctrinally aligned. Um, the next section, 87, uh, is the... Uh, is the uh, prediction, the prophecy by the prophet Joseph on war, on the Civil War. Um, it comes on Christmas Day. It's kind of a dark kind of thing that says the war will start in South Carolina um, and that it will grow and ultimately war will fill the entire earth. It's a pretty gloomy kind of thing. But it's enough so that when the Civil War started uh, there were there were editors uh, in, in several large uh, cities that, that as the Civil War started they got their hands on Joseph Smith's prophet, uh, on, on his prophecy and said, wow, there's a prophet among us. <laughs> that he did this way back in 1832 30 years ago. So but uh, we're not going to take time to do this, but I want to start setting you up a little bit for um, uh, section one, section uh, eighty-eight. Um, they're going to gather the uh, yeah. Just one comment on eighty-seven. Of course, the end doesn't that also talk about the next period of the wars of total destruction and all the nations? So it wasn't just the civil. Right. Yeah. It says it's going to. In fact, uh, it's enough. Because that comes in, um, that's Christmas Day. <laughs> Two days later, they're going to have a conference, and they're going to bring nine brethren in to have a conference. And Section 88 is long. It took, it took a couple of days um, to get most of it. Another section was actually received uh, in January. Uh, but I find it really interesting that it begins... Joseph has the has the brethren praying ahead of time because I think they're a little spooked by 87. It's kind of kind of a scary thing, okay? So Joseph has them come to the uh, conference praying. Verily, thus saith the Lord to those of you assembled yourselves together: uh, It is pleasing unto your Lord, and the angels rejoice over you. The alms of your prayer have come up into the ears of Sabaoth. Or the Lord of Sabaoth. Um, we're going to talk more about the Lord of Sabaoth next time because it means Lord of hosts of armies. I will protect you. But it also means the Lord of creation. It's the host of angels. I'm the one that created. Because we're about to get a... a uh, a cosmology lesson of the of the cosmos that is going to say in section 88 how the worlds work and how they were created I mean it's just it's such, such an expense you kind of got to come ready next week because this is this is a meaty one and it's really really good but he's going to say to those guys that maybe just read section 87 wherefore I send unto you another comforter <laughs> upon you my friends 
that it may abide in your heart, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as recorded in the testimony of John. So section 88 is going to come on the heels of that, and it's going to come as a comfort to them. But also think about the fact that he in, in section 88, he's going, to, he's going to take another parable, just like he did with 86. He's going to take another parable, and he's going to turn it upside down, and he's going to expand it, because Joseph put in kind of the heavy lifting to be able to have a place to put these things. And that is, it's going to be the labors in the vineyard. And he will really do some... It, it's, it's an, what he does in section 88 is pretty amazing. Let me just tease it for next week. Week. Okay. All right. So, comments on all of this before we before we finish up. I'm going to just leave you hanging. It's very interesting to me as I listen to you explain how in the early days the members did not understand, the leaders didn't understand some of the things that they've been given. Most of it, yeah. And I think about what we're being given now and how much ministering information and counsel and guidance we've been given because we don't really get it. How many of us didn't visit Teacher Home Beach that first month when we were told we didn't need to? Um, yeah. So we need to understand that greater meaning for all of this new stuff. So dear up, guys. I think that is a... Conference. Any, anybody like passing on October conference? <laughs> You're planning on like being at the store or something like that. The first couple of sessions of October conference. I think he's got our attention. If nothing else, if this, I, I'm waiting to... I'm hoping that someone like KSL in Utah would like check check and see viewership. How many people are watching TVs in Utah on Saturday morning, the first day of conference? We're not going to miss it. We're going to be glued to the screen. Yeah. This Holy Spirit of promise. Yeah. Up there. Yeah. We see that later on in section 132, mm-hmm. where it talks about ratification. Yeah. The marriage and it's related. Is that different than just having the Holy Ghost? Yeah. Is this a different function for the Holy Ghost? Here, here's your challenge. You got something to study during this next week because it's going to fit in perfectly with the with his revamp parable of the vineyard. We're going to talk about next week. Uh, because the parable of the vineyard is far more and far deeper than you might think, and it is, t- and it does tie into the Holy Spirit of Promise and to Section 132. They are they are related. Okay. Yeah. I just want to say I love how your mind works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. You took that information and actually made it make sense and relevant. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm listening to, to Brother Peterson provide some stuff, and I thought, oh, let, let me pull that right into what we're doing because it made because I see the connection right away. It's like very cool. So um, here's my testimony: as we begin a new as we beginning a new year um, of study, uh, part of what I told them in Provo was just how um, how amazed I was, how much of my narrative of the early church has has rotated a bit. It's been tweaked over and over it's been changed a bit on one side but on the other my testimony of the the divine work of this restoration is far deeper 
because I see the Lord's hand more intimately involved with a more human group of men and women just hanging on, trying to figure it out, doing the best they know how to do. And the Lord lets them struggle and he lets them work and then he steps in and provides more inspiration and another revelation. Then he gives them time to work with it. And it's just, it, this church is a bigger miracle to me now than it was in January. And it's far more true. And, there's, and our history is fantastic, but it is far more nuanced. It is far more um, complicated when you start taking everything in. So that's why I guess I'm pleading with you in your own studies. Interact with whatever text you're reading, whether it's Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants. But bring to it the best commentaries you can find. The best, other, the best what? Saints. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the new book on uh, the saints. I read the first few chapters of that. It's really good. Uh, so there's, a, there's additional information coming to us. Uh, coming to places like this is a good place to kind of synthesize this. And then you take all that, you create a bucket and a place where now the Lord can pour inspiration and revelation about how it applies to your life. Uh, I pray that this will be a vehicle to do that in this next year. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow.